The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Right. Good morning, everybody. If you would, um, you're going to need a few things this morning. Grab your Bible and open it to Romans 13. Uh, if you have a notebook or the TCC app, that would be awesome. And this is a little bit of a, a test for you this morning. Uh, if you have your phone uh, on the TCC app, this is uh, the only place you're going to be able to track it down will be through the app. You can follow these instructions. Click in the top left-hand corner, the You Ask For It teaching series. And then if you click the top logo there that just says you ask for it, you're going to see another uh, click that says what about government. And if you click on that button and scroll down, you're going to see the points of today's application. We're going to do this sermon uh, in reverse this morning. I'm going to give you the application first, and then we're going to work from the biblical text and see how did we get to those points of application? If you can't catch all of this, I'm going to give these points without commentary, and then we'll go back. So again, if you're kind of finding your way there, TCC app, the You Ask For It logo in the top left-hand corner, click that. You're going to see another click box. Don't click What About Government there. Just click the main header, uh, You Ask For It, and that's going to then give you another link that says What About Government, and you'll find today's application they are 10 points of application for us. I'm going to read without comment. If you want to write down, just jot in your notes, we'll spin back to these again um, using the biblical text uh, to show how we got to these points. I'll read the 10 without commentary. Our topic this morning is what about politics or what about government? Application point number one, that we would be a people who obey honor, and pray for our elected officials. Unless obedience to them forces clear disobedience to God. And then even still, we would honor and pray for them. Number two, we would support candidates who advocate for biblical values to the extent that we can discern their true position on matters of shared concern. Number three, we would consider running for public office and applying God-honoring principles to our role there. Number four, we would focus on discipling a small group of people within the church and helping them to apply God's truth to areas of public policy. And if we're a parent, we would do that often in our homes with our children. Number five, that we would get our hands dirty in areas that make society better. Number six, and importantly, that we would moderate our intake of extra-biblical voices positioning truth or pointing to truth. Number seven, that we would invest deeply in making our local church as healthy as possible. Number eight, we would talk about God's word and its implications for policy more than we do about people or personalities. Number nine, that we would strive to move political conversations offline and into trusted relationships. And number 10, 
We would resist the urge to demonize others who are made in God's image, even if their views are radically different than our own. How does the text of Scripture help us get there? Let's pray and we'll jump in. Our Father, we need your help this morning. Uh, We need your help because this is a a dicey matter to consider. Uh, We need your help because this is a hard topic at a hard time. Uh, And I need your help to be able to discern the things that I should say and the things that I should not say this morning. So would your word uh, really resound over us this morning? Would it have weight? And and would that protect me uh, from error, from deviating into tertiary matters uh, that are not important for our topic today? Would you give us grace, we ask, for Christ's sake? Amen. Our text this morning is going to be Romans 13. So if you haven't gotten there, if you would uh, turn there, Romans 13, 1 through 7 will be our text as we consider the question, what about politics? I figure a light, non-controversial topic to come back from vacation and tackle. Um, As we go here, let me uh, remind you that in the app and on the website, there's a button that says, hey, I have a question. And um, in 30-minute sermon, there's no way we're going to plumb the depths of topics related to politics and government. So if in the things that I say or just you have questions about uh, various uh, extraneous topics related to this theme, you can just uh, uh, ask the question there. That'll come to me this afternoon after lunch. I'll record a video that we'll be using in our small group discussion around this topic. So if there's something that you wish I had covered that I didn't, um, we're going to uh, tackle those in our small groups. Uh, This morning's topic uh, is certainly spicy. Uh, and it's spicy in a maybe a different way than other topics. Last week, you considered the topic, what, what about God's will? And that one's dicey. That's a, that's a question that, that we ask a lot in these settings, you know, big questions about the Bible or God. But it's, it's difficult in a different way, right? It, it's difficult because uh, it, it would be way easier, as I was listening uh, online last week, it'd be way easier if you had got, got up and said, all right, so, so God's will is like right here. And if you do step one, two, three, four, you're going to get to God's will every time, and that's going to be for your good, right? If it was just kind of the step-by-step process of unlocking God's will, and it was kind of under a hidden rock somewhere that we could find. But Hugh's topic last week was difficult because it's kind of frustrating. It's not a one-to-one, I do this and I get this But rather, as he showed us last week from Romans 12, that it's offering ourselves to God, whole life worship, obedience to God, and trust in his sovereign providence over all things. This morning's topic is tough um, because I can almost guarantee you I'm going to offend every one of you in some way this morning. Uh, There are certain sermons that you sleep really well the night before you preach, and there are others that you don't because you know there's nothing you can say that will not be offensive to basically everyone that's listening. Why? Uh, Because in these areas, uh, we have deeply formulated opinions. I was was watching online last week, and I noticed Hugh's... uh, uh, a pause, and I assume like this guy goes to the same place every week at this time. Uh, so uh, that, that's my pause for, uh, for the, the car. Uh, 
We have deeply formulated opinions. As soon as I introduce the topic, some of you are thinking, well, what's Matt going to say about the political election or Trump or Biden or the, the Supreme Court justice that was just nominated? We, we conjure up certain stereotypes of this topic, and it's difficult for us to untangle that to consider the biblical text uh, on this theme. So what I want to do is use Romans 13 as a guide provide four general pointers that I think we get from the text on how we're to think about the topic, what about politics, and then allow those 10 points of application to derive clearly from the text of Scripture. Romans 13, incidentally, is kind of the the government paragraph in the Bible. And I think this is important, and I'll point to it later uh, if I remember. There, There just aren't a lot of passages in the New Testament that give us really clear pointers on how we're to respond to government, I think that's instructive for us uh, in some ways. But this text at the end of Paul's letter to the church at Rome certainly does. He begins uh, this way in Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to, governing, to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who will resist will incur judgment. So we're going to kind of walk through this in, in two-verse increments. This first two-verse increment, there's a, there's a big theme or a big truth, and then there's a so what, like how do you tell? The big theme of verses one and two is God's providence in governing leaders, God's control. So if we were to to move that to a point of application or a point for us, uh, it it is from verses 1 and 2, it's to trust God's providence. This is what Paul is pointing us to. That governing leaders are there, and they're there from God, verse 1, end of verse 1. They've been instituted by, by God. God's providence is seen. Uh, clearly here, at least two fashions in related relation to government leaders, their appointment and their decisions. So I'll read a corresponding passage from Daniel 2 and Daniel 5 regarding the appointment of government leaders. There we read in Daniel 2, if you're taking notes, just Daniel 2, 20 and 21. May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings. In Daniel 5, verse 21, the most high God is the ruler over human kingdoms. And he sets anyone he wants over them. Big blanket observation. God is is in control of our human leaders. And not only is he in control of their appointment and their removal, but also the decisions that they make. Proverbs 21, 1. A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. So God is providentially in charge of the appointment of government leaders, human leaders, and in the direction that those human leaders take. So while from our perspective, it looks like elections control and their decisions and cabinet members and people that are around them are directing that, that ultimately God is superseding all of this. He's in charge over it. 
So then the application from verses one and two is how do you know if you trust God's providence and human leadership? What does he say? He says, you submit to it. You're subject to it. Notice the way Romans 13, one begins. Let every person, so there's no out clause given here. And lest we think, well, clearly Paul is writing to like a culture that they had really good leaders and everything was going swimmingly for the church. Okay? He's writing to the church in Rome at a time of overt persecution, a time with great government hostility that's only going to intensify. And he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, of course, there are a bazillion but whatabouts here. This text doesn't tell us what to do in every situation. It doesn't even establish what form of government is best. But it positions us to be faithful Christians in all forms of government and under all forms of leaders that are appointed. We're to to be subject uh, to them, to the governing authorities. This calls to mind a passage from Matthew 22. You remember this scene? He's asked, hey, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what does Jesus do? He says, hey, give me, a, give me a coin, right? So they throw him a coin, and he says, hey, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. He says, okay, so render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. This is a brilliant, and this is why they walk away marveling, because what does Jesus do? He says, Caesar has stamped his image on a certain domain, this coin. But God has stamped his image on humanity. So in a very small way, we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, what his image is stamped on. But in a far greater way, our ultimate allegiance is to God, the one whom we bear his image But it tells us that in this passage, Matthew 22 and Romans 13, that government is legitimately established by God. God cares about the government, and so should we. But ultimately, God's image is stamped upon people. So ultimately, our responsibility in how we respond to government is ultimately a responsibility to God. We're responding to him as we submit. We submit in ways, and this may be something we could consider in the video, uh, in ways that unless we're actively being pressed uh, to rebel from God's, from God's law. Similar to, uh, to marriage, similar to kids honoring their parents. We, uh, unless we're being actively forced to disobey God, our responsibility is to, to, to live uh, in, in subject to the government. We have cases in Scripture, a few. Daniel saying, I'm not going to bow down to these graven images. We have um, Acts 4 and 5, the apostles saying, hey, if you want to put me in prison again, I'm not going to stop preaching and telling people the good news of Jesus. So we do see people come out from under the authority at times. But the general category, the normative ebb and flow of life, far more often than not, is that we're not forced into disobedience by God by the government. And so we should trust God and submit to those that he's appointed to lead, even if they're not who we wish were in charge. We should trust that God is good and his good ultimate will is being worked out in the rise and fall of nations, the establishment and the uprooting of leaders, and the direction of the choices that good and bad leaders make. This is why I always cringe 
when I see people prognosticate about a guaranteed future on the basis of whoever is or is not in leadership. We're going to hear it a hundred bazillion times over the next five weeks. If such and such gets elected, fill in the blank, right? Moral chaos ensues. We've fallen into a moral abyss and will never recover. Really? I think what that reflects is more often a distrust in the providential control of God and the direction and establishment of kings and rulers than it does in the actual outcome of that guaranteed future. So we want to, we want to trust God with his control and we want to submit to that as much as it is possible, as much as it depends on, on us. Second point, we want to do what is good. So we want to trust uh, God's control. Secondly, we want to do what is good. I'll continue reading in verse 3 of our text. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, the language here in verses 3 and 4 is actually an extension of what we see in verses 1 and 2. Because God is control of all things. Then twice in that text I just read, how does he refer to the, the government leader? He's God's servant. Using the exact same word we get, we get deacon from, Acts 6. He's God's deacon. He's God's servant, carrying out his wish. So God is in control. God appoints leaders, and those leaders are under the control of God who is channeling that in ways that he chooses. How can this be the case? What he's saying in verses 3 and 4 is it's better for humans to have some form of government than not to have one at all. Uh, case in point, uh, consider the book of Judges. What happens in the book of Judges? No king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. What happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes? We end that book with uh, a body getting cut up and mailed to all parts. So the, it's crazy. Chaos ensues. So, so forms of government are for human good. And what is the primary responsibility that they're given here? The primary responsibility is restraining evil. It's avenging wrongdoing. Primary responsibility is restraining evil, avenging wrongdoing. God's way of dealing with evil is through the, the judgment that is given by the state or by, by government leaders. They repay for deeds. And incidentally, look back in Romans 12, just back a chapter. Look in Romans 12, verse 17. This is a passage, remember Hugh was telling us last week that you know, the, the text is written to an individual Christian who's tasked with the responsibility of offering their lives, whole, whole life worship to God. On down, we get this just rapid fire list of statements from Paul. This is what you're to do individually. Notice in verse 17, Romans 12, 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. So what he forbids the individual Christian to do, he commends the state to do. This is the government's responsibility. It is, it is wrong for us as individuals to attempt to avenge wrongdoing, but entrusting that to government leaders who are positioned there by God 
to judge evil, and in so doing, they act as a bit of a precursor to the judgment that is found at God's judgment seat, the wrath of God that falls on evildoers. Think back to Matthew 22, the text I referred to earlier. There's a a role, there's a responsibility, a sub-responsibility. If you were with us on the call with Dr. Ashford six months ago talking about this theme, uh, he mentioned sphere sovereignty, sphere, kind of circular. The idea that government has a sphere of responsibility that they're given. And that sphere is far less than the overarching responsibility of God's. That sphere is to restrain evil, to avenge wrongdoing. They're receiving taxes and using that to appoint leaders. And, and we could argue some are doing it wisely, some are doing it unwisely, but they're, they're following in their God-ordained responsibility. But in this responsibility in Romans 13 and Matthew 22, it is a lesser responsibility than the domain that God rules over. Think about the primary responsibilities that are given to the government in contrast to the primary responsibilities that are given to the local church. In many ways, friends, what we are doing here this morning is testifying to a kingdom that supersedes, that is bigger than the sub-kingdom of government that we exist under. There's a true and right and ruling king And his kingdom is manifest on earth in and through the local church. And so it is here that we have the responsibility far more holistically than does the government to worship God and live in obedience to his ways, to press one another to good, to care for the poor, to love widows and orphans, to promote biblical gender and marriage. These things are given to the the church, to the local church. And this is why I mentioned earlier, the focus of the biblical text is not on the government. This is why we have very few passages that give us clear pointers because that's not the focus. The focus is God's kingdom being manifest on earth through the local church. And for that reason, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, it is far more important who are the pastors of your local church than who is the president of your country. The responsibilities that we have here gathered as a subset of humanity to steward and point to God-honoring, holistic, all-life worship is far more important. And to that domain, that that smaller domain of governmental authority and responsibility, how do we we respond there? Paul tells us in Romans 13, we we do good. We do good. Three forms of good, just quickly. We do the good that's right before us. We live in obedience to the law of the land as much as possible. We resist the urge to buy the lie of the slippery slope argument that if I do this and submit to this, they're just going to take more and we don't know where this thing is going to go. Maybe. And we can get there in due time. Perhaps there is a time when a tyrannical government rules over the states and we're forced to resist. But friends, we're not there. And so for now, we err on the side of submitting in gray areas. As Paul's going to write in a moment, for our conscience. We 
come under the authority of the leaders and we, we do what is good. We obey the law. We do what is good also in terms of voting for those who pursue what God defines as good. We want to, and, and, and I probably like over nuance my statement in the application. Uh, as much as it depends on us and as much as we can tell what a person actually believes versus what they're mouthing from a political platform, we want to as much as possible say, I want to appoint the type of leaders that are going to vote and advocate for the positions that I hold to be near and dear to biblical values. And if those don't exist, we want to consider being the types of people that run for those offices and advocate for what is good and right. And then... We want to do what is good and right, even if it's in contrast to what the government leaders say is good and right. We want to define right in this world, in our local churches, as what God defines as right and work towards those ends. In many ways, we, we don't need the government to define what is good and right for us because God's word already has. And so as we submit under the weight of that word, we're able to run after and pursue what is good, even if it's in contrast to the defining ethos of our culture at any given moment. So for example, it is true and right that government redefining of marriage may make things more difficult for the church. But the primary responsibility to build healthy marriages starts right here, friends. The Supreme Court does not establish for me what is good and right in terms of healthy marriage. The local church does under the authority of God's word. And so it is there that I'm able to run after what is good and right and pure and holy regardless of what government leaders say to be good and right and pure and holy. Not trying to minimize the complexity that it adds to the conversation, but to say that perhaps the thing we should be more concerned about is are we promoting healthy marriages in and through the local church? Are we advocating for the right things here? Do we have some broken marriages in our home around our dinner table that we as a couple are advocating for and fighting for and praying for? This is the onus of responsibility that's given to the local church, to, to each of us. And it is something that, that probably we can get our hands dirty in uh, far easier than these broader sweeping policy issues. Thirdly, acknowledge a superior authority. So trust God's providence. Do the good that's right before you. And then acknowledge a superior authority. Beginning reading in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are, and then look at this word choice. You're like, Paul, what are you doing, man? You just called them servants using deacon word, and here he calls them God's ministers, tending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom uh, respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So we, as the people of God, acknowledge a superior authority, God's spirit burdening our conscience. So, so we don't obey just to avoid God's wrath, but we obey because it's the right thing to do and God's law is written on our hearts through his spirit. So as much as it depends on us, 
We want to be the kind of people that are submitting to the weight of God's Spirit. Living and submit. it's the counsel that, that Paul gives to, uh, to a spouse with an unbelieving husband. It doesn't say bow up and fight your way out. It says live in harmony, submit, love, care, pray, and in so doing, win this one. And this is the call to, to the people of God. It says live humbly under authority for the sake of our, our conscience. We vote in line with our conscience. We, we are right to extend this to, uh, to that realm. We want to, to vote in ways and support political leaders in policy matters that we hold as dear and important, while recognizing there is a ton of complexity with the American political system. And there's a ton of complexity represented in this parking lot, different convictions regarding the degree to which the American government system and certain parties better or worse reflect biblical values. And we would be naive to suggest that all of that is not informed by the crazy amount of voices that speak into our lives, by our life history, by our age, by the way we've engaged in politics in the past. And so we want to hold some of these ideas, some of these voting, we want to hold it loosely and recognize that people's consciences are going to be pricked in different ways. We don't want to bind someone's conscience by placing on them matters of right and wrong that the scriptures don't. You'll hear it again all the time. No Christian can fill in the blank. There's no way a Christian could vote for fill in the blank. My fear is that in so doing, we redefine what it means to be a Christian. My voting record is not what makes me a Christian. And it is not what makes you a Christian either. We are Christians because of God's grace given to us through Jesus Christ, through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Does that work have implications for my voting decisions? Absolutely. But does it make me a Christian that I vote in such and such a way? Absolutely not. What should bind our consciousness? Honoring, praying, respecting those who rule over, over us. Whatever our personal convictions, the clear word from God in this text is pay taxes, show honor, respect those who are appointed as leaders. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. Justin Martyr, writing around AD 100 or so, says this, Everywhere we are more readily than all men, we more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to the appointed by the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we've been taught by Jesus. We worship God, but in all things we will gladly serve you as leader, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you may be found to possess sober judgment. I think that's the right posture for us, that we can honor, we can respect, we can pray for even forms of government or leaders that we disagree with. And then I'm going to break every preaching rule to get us to my fourth idea. Betrays all of my Bible uh, preaching classes. So if you're here and you're taking those classes, don't do what I'm about to do, but I want to bridge a gap for us into verse 8. You see a clear division there. The thought actually ends in verse 7 with governing leaders. 
This is the clear text. This is the paragraph that we're to consider. But I don't think, uh, kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, because I actually don't think it's violating principles to connect to the next thread that Paul starts in verse 8. It says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I don't think it's any mistake that the bridge coming out of the text here is one of love. The law of love that presses us to respond in humble submission, to respond under the supreme authority of God, and to speak and act in love to all those that we encounter, specifically those that God has appointed over us. And friends, and this is probably where I'm going to offend 80% of the room, there's just no room in the law of love to speak and act with hostility even when you're advocating for something that you think is good and right. All those fill in the blank are stupid. Friends, there's just no room in the economy of the kingdom of God for that type of, of speech. Neighbor love applies to Republicans and Democrats alike. It applies across the aisle. You say, well, it's one thing, uh, to be a Christian is to be hated. It's one thing to be hated and disliked for righteousness' sake. And it's another thing to be hated and disliked because your speech lacks wisdom. We within the church who have submitted under another kingly authority can be the kind of people that even in our dissent about a person's position or their character, we can act towards them in ways that reflect the fact that we believe they too are made in the image of God. And we could too can honor them by giving them the benefit of the doubt that we hope people give us because, friends, frankly, we're not all that put together either. And I worry that if we give ourselves the latitude to speak dastardly things about those with whom we disagree, it's going to invariably bubble over into the way we speak about people that we interact with up close. There are ways within the American political landscape to speak in love while advocating for deep conviction. And hot-headed, pugnacious people don't pave the way for the type of multi-generational discipleship and love within the church that's going to be vital to move us in a direction of biblical values. Loving care, respectful, intelligent dialogue, humble acknowledgement of limitations, of the limitations of my positions. That's what positions the church to be a city on a hill, to be a light in a dark room, and friend, that's what positions you to actually earn the ear of some of the people in this church that you want to influence or you believe that are being led astray. 
In summary, I think Peter's conclusion in 1 Peter 2 on the eve of Nero's persecution presents a good model for us. In a parallel text to Romans 13, he writes this, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor or to the supreme authority or to governors or to those who sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, praise those who do what is good. For it's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God and honor the emperor. Who are the kinds of people that can do that? They're the kinds of people that recognize their kingdom is not of this world. They're the kinds of people that realize this side of heaven, we are unlikely to untangle the American government system from the mess that sin has made. And they are people that long for the return of the heavenly king who promises that apart from policy decisions and platforms and personalities, he's going to restore all things to the praise of his kingly fame. And those of us who know that ultimate kingdom is coming and that ultimate kingdom is ruling over the here and now, we can submit well to leaders, even those we don't like. Join me as we pray. Our Father, we need your grace to know how to, um, how to do that. There's just so many, uh, but what about our, our spirit? Man, we just want to press against it. Um, got so many voices competing with your kingly authority. Sin that so easily entangles wants to, to, to bow up. We want to fight. And um, we, we, we just need your grace to be humble, submissive, gentle, good people. To live in a countercultural kingdom in and through the local church. And to not get so bent out of shape about all that's going on in the broader kingdoms of this world. Even if those ultimately mean our subjection, our death even. That, that we who are in Christ have no fear because we know a coming kingdom is going to make all things new. And, and we know who our king is. So would you soften us to be submissive people, to give us wisdom to know how to run the delicate dance of advocating for things that are deeply important to us, while doing so with words of love and gentleness and care? Would you this day be with our governing leaders? Would we be the kinds of people who pray for those who are entrusted to lead over us? We pray for our country in the weeks to come as we navigate a tumultuous political season and as we all make decisions about what we will do in our voting and how we will speak and influence those who are close to us. We are so incredibly thankful, God, that our ultimate fate does not rest in what is decided at a voting booth in a few weeks. That, that our eternal fate, our, the king, our kingdom citizenship 
is in heaven. And we know that you are far better king than anyone that will be elected to lead this country. And so we pray, as Justin Martyr did, that you would give those who are leading wisdom, that you would bend their hearts, that you would channel their hearts, as Proverbs 21 tells us, into what is good and right. That the policy decisions and the platforms would, would advocate for things that you care about. And that in a, in a good and pleasing way, our, our country would, would better represent on earth as in heaven. But primarily, Lord, we pray for our local church and other local churches who are kingdom, kingdom emissaries here. That, that we would be the, the kind of places where love and virtue and righteousness reign supreme. And that ultimately we would be a city set on the hill in a really dark time. Praise you as we sing. Would you stir our affections for you as king? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.